ora koutou katoa, everyone. I'm Bernard Hickey here in Hume Bay in Auckland, but Peter, Peter Bale, our co-host from Somewhere Exotic. Where are you, Peter? Oh, Bernard, hola. I'm in Spain. I've buggered up my own broadband, but I'm sitting in my bedroom in Spain. Ah, fantastic to see you. In southern Spain. Very t- it probably might be a bit echoey in my bedroom, but at least I don't have bras and things hanging uh, <laughs> over the door handle like we did uh, at one point. <laughs> No, this is um, for those regular uh, viewers of the Hoon. You will you will know of Peter's various overseas bureau. It's lovely to have you on, and I hope that it's a nice, calm Europe. Maybe it's warm. Maybe it's it's busy. It's not. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah, yeah. It's early in the morning, and I, but I've, I've got up, made my coffee. I don't have a gin and tonic today, unfortunately. Even I don't start at seven in the morning with a gin and tonic. <laughs> yeah. No, it's been a, a heck of a week here. Uh, I know you've been travelling, Peter, but we've had plenty of action around politics with three waters becoming 10 waters, but mm. no change in co-governance and also no change in the off-balance sheet structure. I wrote quite a lot about that this week. The government made the announcement with Kieran McAnulty being quite different in his approach to the Mahuta, where... He ended the press conference by saying, well, I think I nailed that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, certainly that was interesting. And we also had... He, um, he actually, it just, he sort of let his inner voice come out, did he? Yeah. At the end, he said, oh, we nailed that. And that's far from true because when you actually look at what has happened, there's really not been much much change. Sure, they've changed the name from Three Waters to Affordable Water. Oh, Jesus Affordable water. So this, the number of things that this government is abandoning in a desperate race towards the election is absolutely extraordinary. The Auckland intensification, mm. most of the climate change stuff, they've kind of papered over that Treasury report or the report earlier this week about the scale of the, mm. the gap in the climate change um, you know, requirements on, the, on uh, buying carbon credits. They're throwing away everything of the last five years in a desperate attempt to get to the election, I think. Affordable water. Bloody hell. Which actually, when you when you look at it, is actually not much more than a description of what they say are going to be big rates increases, but not quite yeah. as big as they'd expected, yes, um, yes. from a piece of modelling that goes out to 2054. I don't know about you, but I've never modelled my own finances out to 2054. I have yes. no idea. Well, we might have to, but yeah. 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 <laughs> And the government really is in clear the decks mode, essentially presenting as low a target as it possibly can. It's crawling along the ground, hoping that it can avoid being shot by the opposition, who are... This is surely indefensible water now. I mean, it's just, what on earth do they stand for? I'm interested that co-governance is still there, and I I would recommend, at the risk of promoting other people's podcasts that are clearly much less successful than ours, but... Nikki Maddow's piece for the detail on what co-governance is is absolutely superb. And it's the kind of thing that should have been done a lot more of in the last two years or so to explain it. It isn't necessarily anti- anti-democratic and it, you know, it helps to fulfil our obligations that we've signed up to in terms of Indigenous people. That's right. I think the whole process is performative and a waste of time because what it essentially was trying to do is, is convince voters that they can have the infrastructure and not have to pay for it. When actually shifting these balance these assets off a council and government balance sheets mean that they can borrow money, but they're going to pay for that by increasing water charges. And actually, when you look at the cost of it, it's actually cheaper for the crown to borrow the money up front. Mm. 
And we've seen that because Kainga Ora, who was off balance sheet, have been brought back on balance sheet because turns out it's cheaper to do it that mm. way. Mm. And uh, this is all about the government not wanting to ask to increase charges and taxes. And it's a, it's a problem for the opposition too, because they, of course, don't want to introduce charges or taxes, but they also want to give the suggestion that they are doing something about the infrastructure shortages. As our population rises very fast, and we got numbers today from StatsNZ showing net migration up to 52,000 already. Mm -hmm. Now, that is double the long-term forecast from StatsNZ about our population growth, and it means that, yet again, we are turning on the migration taps to try to in theory, solve our economic issues in the short term mm. and only stressing our infrastructure out. And we're stressing the infrastructure that we're not terribly good at developing. Speaking of immigration, there's, there's Professor Patman. G'day, Robert. Great to see you. Hi, Bernard. Hi, Peter. Robert, I'm very interested to see from China and Taiwan and the bit of the sea between the two, there's been plenty of action over the last week or so, which you know luckily has av avoided turning into something nasty. But it really is becoming quite uh, heated and dangerous there. Yes, uh, the Chinese, in their own words, have given Taiwan a very stern warning. Uh, they've carried out, I think, three to four days' worth of military drills. And as you indicated, Bernard, these drills were pretty invasive, involving lots of planes and also what the Americans who monitored the whole thing said were attempts at precision targeting and also practicing a blockade. So... You know, I think the message is that um, to the Taiwan leader, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, that she, of course, had ignored warnings about going to the United States and meeting with Kevin McCarthy. And that this seemed to be a sort of a final warning. Don't do it again. If we warn you not to go somewhere, you know, take us seriously, because otherwise the practice run may develop into something a little bit more lethal. That seems to be the message, doesn't it? Yeah, and it was interesting that this time around, there were the most incursions by warplanes from China mm -hmm. into Taiwan airspace. China is also now aggressively and in quite a detailed way using its its own aircraft carrier, the Shandong, which it built and which is the first real large-scale indication of projecting power beyond your borders. Up until now, really, they're so expensive to build and maintain and support that really only America has been able to support hmm. aircraft carrier battle groups because it's not just the aircraft carrier. You've got to have, have a whole bunch, <laughs> bunch of other ships around it to sure. um, stop it being sunk. And so the Shandong is in there in the Straits of Taiwan, flying planes off it, and and the Americans are also, you know, doing their own thing. They went within 12 miles of uh, the Mischief Reef, I think it is. The, this is the... Yep. Um, the making, it's actually called the Making Mischief Reef. Yeah, ma Making Mischief Reef. Yeah. So, Robert, I, I just wondered, you know, how closely should people in New Zealand be uh, watching this situation? Well, I think they should be <laughs> watching it closely because, of course, as we all know, China is our major export destination. The thing about China, which is puzzling me, and be interesting to hear your views, uh, Peter and Bernard, that in a sense, China is sort of huffing and puffing and carrying out these practice uh, blockades, etc., etc. But it, in a sense, uh, the consequences if China carried through one of these threats against Taiwan, I think would be pretty counterproductive for the Chinese economy, because the Americans and the Europeans 
I think would follow through with pretty extensive sanctions and constraints on their exports, that's Chinese exports. And then, of course, Taiwan is a, a major international provider yeah. uh, of chips, isn't it? I think you mentioned this, Bernard, once before, yeah. microchips. And it would have catastrophic consequences, I think, in the long term, maybe not in the short term, for China's role in the global economy. So, you know, I, I think China, I can't help thinking that behind closed doors, there must be some voices saying to Xi, actually, you've got to be careful how far you go in these threats, because if we do follow through, it could be bad news for, you know, communist political control, because after all, Mm. that is based on the prosperity of the Chinese economy. And if China's leadership takes steps to undermine that prosperity, they will be accountable. Although it sounds strange in a one-party state saying they would be accountable, but one thing we think they may be accountable for is when the economy is no longer growing impressively or Mm. performing well. And as we've said many times before, you know, sometimes American commentators and Russian commentators talk as if China achieved superpower status independently of the rest of the world. It didn't. Mm. Mm. It got there with the compliments of the West. And he's still, the Chinese economy is still critically dependent on exports to the United States and the EU and Japan. And uh, none of those actors are likely to take it lightly if China, you know, followed through one of its threats against Taiwan. So it's fascinating. But they learn a lot, Robert. I, I, I would argue that they learn a tremendous amount from the huffing and puffing. Right. It costs them very little. It's an extremely effective exercise. Every aircraft that goes into that restricted zone or reporting zone teaches them something about what the response might be. Right. And it's also, you know, this is not my normal stance on this, but you know, it is a statement against U.S. hegemony. Mm. Of course, the United States has, and Australia and New Zealand have perfect rights to, well, theoretically perfect rights to go through the South China Sea and sail in these open, open waters and so on. Um, mm. But you know, they're putting a marker down about what they consider to be their business. And I still believe, Robert, and I, and I, and there's certain of your colleagues who disagree with me on this that we have still have to find a way to engage, and that New Zealand ought to be extremely careful about how. It, steps closer to AUKUS and so on on this. I agree with you on the last point. I think New Zealand has to frame a foreign policy that makes it quite clear to China that we won't be taking a backward step on our core values, but on areas where we can agree, uh, we're prepared to be constructive. And that is to say, I think the government has tried to do this by refusing to pigeonhole China and Russia together. Although, of course, China has been its own worst enemy in this respect with its... uh, wolf warrior diplomacy and its support for Putin, which I think has gone down very badly. And apparently our foreign minister, Nanai Mahuta, did raise this issue in Beijing with the Chinese leadership. Which we might know if she'd taken any reporters with her. Oh, I see. <laughs> I thought you were on the plane with her, Peter. <laughs> yeah, well, usually. I, I am in spirit. Yeah. And Robert, too, this, um, this dance, I suppose you could call it, or this jostling of elbows in the geopolitics got an extra frisson this week when oh, very nice segue yes, was, yes. that's very good yeah when emmanuel macron decided to mount off about what he thinks china and the eu should be doing with each other tell us about what's going on there well it, it's i wish i could i mean it, it, mr macron at times struggles to impose intellectual coherence on his foreign policy and um you know it may be to do with domestic politics where of course He's been having a very bad time, and he uses foreign policy uh, in a sense to show that France, under his leadership, 
has an independent view to pl- a role to play. I don't know. I mean, I wonder if he was doing that. But I think that the the point here being with Mr. Macron is that the Chinese, of course, received his comments very favourably, which added to the sense of irritation in Washington and Germany. Actually, Germany was not impressed by his mm. comments, and um, he does seems to be a maverick. I mean, he. He, but again, Robert, isn't he isn't he actually doing what what the sensible thing and saying let's not get hauled into particularly through rhetoric a conflict over Taiwan? I think he's saying that the EU is big enough and needs to be big enough to have its own foreign policy, even if it's aligned to the United States, but it needs to be independent of the United States. It goes goes back again to this. I mean, he knows we could still be, we could be looking at Trump in twenty twenty four as well. Yeah, but there's another side to that coin, Peter. Macron by making such noises may be bringing about the very thing he doesn't want. After all, he made soothing noises and said he, even after the Russian illegal invasion of Ukraine, hmm. he was saying that he could give Macron, the Europe could give security guarantees to Putin when he hmm. couldn't. Hmm. And now he's saying at a time when China's been carrying out these very provocative drills, rounded territory, by the way, which the Communist Party has never ruled over of China, China's never actually controlled Taiwan. No. He's saying that, you know, France uh, does not want to see uh, be dragged into a situation in a, in a sense and become a follower of the United States. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, you may have a point. I think Europe can assert its independence without being seen to try to find favour with either Putin or Xi Jinping. Yeah, but I think we do have to find some middle ground here where we're you know part of the alliance part of defense not we mm. i mean uh it's certainly the european union i mean you know this reminds me of Mitterrand. remind you know chirac did a very similar thing about iraq this is essentially saying we have our own minds on these issues and I, that's that's yeah, surely got to be got to be welcomed but they need to back it up the action it's all very well saying they've got a distinctive position but look france has given less to support ukraine than mm. the netherlands has mm. Really? It's about 10th in the pecking order. Wow. And, um, you know, Macron spent the first five or six months of the Ukraine invasion in trying to come up with a land for peace deal. So, again, I think, unfortunately, that Mr. Macron's stand on issues like the uh, Ukraine has alienated much of mm. the other members of the EU, not least the Eastern European members. Mm. So I don't think he's got any position to speak for the EU. And uh, if you compare his comments with that of the, you know, the high representative for foreign policy, uh, Joseph Borrell, he's made quite uncompromising comments about Taiwan. So whose foreign policy is he representing? I think the, I think, yes, you can understand the criticism from the United States because they feel that France hasn't acknowledged what the United States is trying to do, both with respect to Taiwan, but also in Ukraine. But I think there's a lot of frustration in Europe as well because they feel that Mr. Macron, they don't know what next is going to come out of his mouth. Mm. And he's speaking as if he represents them all when he clearly doesn't. Robert, just on the chi- on the Taiwan question, I was looking at a map the other day of Taiwan which was showing these incursions. And also The Economist had a very good piece about a, a trip to Kinmen, the Kinmen Islands, which is a little tiny pocket of islands just off Fujian, which means that you can see Taiwanese territory from from the um, Chinese mainland. And there's also disputes on those islands about whether uh, there needs to be a rapprochement with China to some extent. It would be very interesting to see whether the security guarantees 
extended to those little three groups of islands that are you know really tucked into sort of coves in a way harbors on the mainland rather than mainland Taiwan itself and it wouldn't surprise me if the Chinese did pick one of those off at some point for an incursion in order to test that you know in the same way we're talking about the bluff and bluster mm. in this case I just wonder too um, whether uh, New Zealand has to be a little bit careful. There's been quite a bit of interesting commentary around New Zealand's relationship with NATO. <laughs> it seems weird, you know, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. What on earth is New Zealand doing, mucking around on the edges there? Um, there's some suggestion that we're part of some sort of informal uh, bolt-on extra called the IP4 or something. Uh, and there's even talk of an inv invitation to Chris Hipkins to go to speak to NATO, a NATO mm. conference in a couple of weeks' time, which he might... Jacinda has twice now. Mm. That's Yeah, and we all thought it was just a Jacinda thing. But it looks like they're quite interested in, in New Zealand's view on this. Robert, do you think there's much going on that's real here around NATO or should we just say yes to every invitation just, just so we can play with the big boys occasionally? I think there's a great deal of misunderstanding about the relationship between New Zealand and NATO. This goes back quite a long way. Uh, we got involved in with NATO in Afghanistan from 2003 mm. and then in 2012, John Key went to Brussels and signed an agreement to become a partner of NATO. So it's a long-standing relationship and, you know, a lot of people believe that any involvement in NATO will be a sellout of New Zealand's principled independent foreign policy. Actually, I think it's the other way round. New Zealand has always taken the view, because it's a relatively small country, that it has to uphold uh, multilateralism and the rules-based order. And one thing we like about NATO is that most of their members are liberal democracies, and we get on famously with several of them. And we see eye to eye, we have a much closer worldview, actually, to some members of NATO than we do with the United States or, for that matter, the UK. But in addition, we actually want a multilateral approach to problems that don't respect borders. Mm. And therefore, in a sense, there's a logical fit between New Zealand's approach to security and the NATO organisation, where which is a defensive organisation and can't make decisions without consensus. Yeah, it's interesting, Robert, also our, our you know, five eyes and the fact that we, have, you know, we, we do appear to be weirdly, despite, and, I, and again, I, don't want, I always hate this being a sort of plucky New Zealand public punching above its weight story, but you know, it is true that five, you know, New Zealand plays an important role in five eyes and that we have people in NATO headquarters and in the uh, yeah. British High Command at the moment you know, assisting particularly with, with Ukraine intelligence, which takes us to the intelligence discussion and the possible implications for Five Eyes of this rather embarrassing US leak. And I, I was reading something about that last night about the importance of it, because if you think about the dif difference between this and the WikiLeaks leaks, which Julian Assange has been, you know, effectively in prison for in the United States, in the UK for five years, waiting judgments on extradition, let alone his eight years in the Ecuador embassy, uh, and Chelsea Manning. This is much more significant in the sense because it's it's almost immediate. It's real. It's almost real time. It's I mean the, yeah. the um, some of the intelligence that's come out so far was from March, and it's about a real active conflict. It isn't about methods and history. It is an extraordinary development, and the more we learn about because this young man who's been arrested in the last twenty four hours uh, as being responsible, he actually shared this information with a select group of people. 
And then it was the someone within that group who actually leaked the yeah, information. Yeah, a select group, a select group of people who celebrate weapons, anti-Semitism, yeah. and racism. Which and, and just the kind of person that I want to see in the in the U.S. National Guard. Absolutely, I'm not in any way defending his choice of friends. Yeah, but I was shocked that he was shocked that one of them yeah. was tempted to leak it. I was extraordinarily reckless to share confidential information with even a, a small circle of people who are not connected professionally. So. It was just an extraordinary thing to do. What I found interesting about this particular leak, and I, I do agree with you, this has very big ramifications, for example, China and also Five Eyes and both, of course. Uh, but also what was particularly interesting is that although this information was quite damaging, it led to feverish speculation. Mm. What was the motivation behind the leak? But we're now beginning... You know, there was the first of all, there was the view that there was a disgruntled person within the Pentagon who didn't like American support for Ukraine and therefore yeah. tried to put these leaks out to embarrass. Then there was the countervailing view that, in fact, there was someone who was disgruntled in the Pentagon yeah. with a lack of American support and wanted to actually beef up by these leaks, showing that Ukraine could run out of munitions. As opposed to a nasty little egotist showing off in front of his bros. Yeah, and now it looks that the reality is now beginning to look a little bit more sobering. Yeah. yeah. What I found interesting about this is that what was uh, this guy showing off to his mates in a Discord server eventually got out and that it was the alternative independent, I suppose, gatherers of information online, Bellingcat and other journalists who actually found the guy, <laughs> found mm. the guy. Peter, you, you've, uh, you know, had a bit to do with uh, some of the independent... With Bellingcat, yep, I have. Yeah. They're doing extraordinary work in a way and helping to... Well, they do, they're so forensic. I mean, they there's a, on, on the right wing, or at least on the sort of weird Glenn Greenwald side of journalism and media, there's a lot of hostility towards Bellingcat because it has a lot of former military people in it and it, you know, is a, is a non-profit which gets money from various... Very, but it's all fully disclosed. I mean, really, they have not ex exactly invented, but almost invented the whole concept of open source intelligence. You know, and they were, they, as you say, they were talking to the English guy, I think, who posted, transposted a lot of the stuff onto a Korean music hip hop site. Quite how you, how, how many sites you have to patrol to um, find the crumbs through the internet of uh, moving from a Discord server with a with a nasty little racist in in America sharing this with his friends and into Korean hip hop. You know, it's quite interesting, but you know, there will be, there can potentially be serious consequences for this because for one of the things that we've talked about quite a lot since the beginning of the Ukraine conflict is this dramatic shift in the use of U.S. intelligence and the transparency mm. of um, mm. putting out this information, and this now shows to some extent quite the depth of the extent of the Americans' ability to listen in or get human intelligence potentially, but in, particularly in the Russian hierarchy. Mm. And that, you know, you might see some people falling out of windows fairly soon as a result, I would have thought. Yeah. Well, let's hope that was the last of it that, that came out. No. There's 300, there's, 300, there's 300 pages, I think, and we've only, got, we've only had about 60 so far. All right. Well, we should yeah. watch the space. And by the way, I'd recommend everyone buy the book, We Are Bellingcat, Global Crime, Online Sleuths, and the Bold Future of News by Elliot Higgins, which is a cracking yarn. Who started this in his bedroom, literally, like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Robert Patman, thank you very much from so the much, University Robert. of Otago. Lovely to whip around the world of geopolitics in the first uh, half hour of the show. You're very welcome. And it's uh, wonderful to invite in a new guest to The Hoon, uh, Rebecca Peer, 
from the University of Canterbury, who is an expert in climate change and uh, energy and uh, has been very helpful in the past in, to me in particular in, in putting together a podcast for When the Facts Change at the spin-off. Rebecca, thank you very much for coming on to The Hoon. Thanks for having me. Now, it's been a big week in the world of you know climate change news in New Zealand and maybe you might have missed the um, the beginning of the news bulletins and the front pages of the uh, of the other media outlets but we're really uh, focused on this so starting off with the climate commission which uh, put out some uh, recommendations to the government in its very you know careful loyally bureaucratic way mm-hmm. essentially saying the government wasn't doing enough to improve its climate emissions reductions. Could you give us a sense of, you know, how important the Climate Commission's recommendations this week was? Yeah, um, I think, <laughs> a bit of a personal opinion, but uh, I think it's it's hugely important. I mean, we we know that this is a massive issue. We've made this big global commitment and we've set these targets and time is running out for us to take action, right? No matter what decision we're going to make, now is the time. There's there's no time for us to be deciding between what we're going to do and if we're going to do it. And, you know, we'll, we'll assess the options and we'll take a long time to decide. We're at the point where we need to start doing things and we need to do them now. 2030 targets are starting to look very, very close. That 2025 budget year for the, the carbon budget is right around the corner, essentially. And so taking action needs to happen now. And I would say, buried in between the very nice presentation of that message from the Climate Change Commission, I see that coming through as someone who studies climate change, you know, softly delivered, but we need we need to do stuff and we need to do it now. Um, and I think that's coming through clearly. We, we need to take greater action. And one of the policy levers to do that is the emissions trading scheme. Yeah, so um, for those who haven't been following it, we've been covering it on the Kaka. Uh, just before Christmas, the Cabinet decided not to make some changes recommended by the Climate Commission to the Emissions Trading Scheme, which would have effectively increased the price of carbon credits, mm. increased the price of petrol, which when you're talking all the time about bread and butter and affordability, mm-hmm. it's not something you want to do nine months before an election. So the government essentially decided to choose popularity and low petrol prices over uh, agreeing with the recommendations of the Climate Commission. But there is a cost, a potential cost here for taxpayers. And we found out a bit more about this week from the Treasury, which put out a paper with the Ministry for the Environment and analysing the fiscal risks, you know, how much it might cost if we miss our targets. Could you give us a, a bit of a rundown on, you know, what are the potential risks here for New Zealand if we don't hit our targets under the Paris Agreement? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's not just a risk that we're experiencing. It's a risk that everyone is experiencing. Every overshoot from those targets is going to contribute more and more to climate change. That's going to increase the severity um, and the frequency of those impacts that we hear often, you know, large-scale hazards, increasing heat, and all of that has cascading impacts throughout our day-to-day life um, and, you know, what we're able to do and how we interact and where we can live um, and, you know, how we experience the world. And so it's a big problem. And every Mm. bit that we overshoot is going to have lasting impacts. You know, those greenhouse gases that we emit, particularly carbon dioxide, stay in the atmosphere for 
a hundred years. And so everything that we're doing now, continuing to emit, is still going to have impacts lasting in the future. Rebecca, do, do you look at the, I mean, this, this may, be, may be too much of a political question to ask you, but um, and, and thanks for coming on, but we've talked quite a bit uh, on this podcast about the uh, promise or the the sort of check paid into the future that James Shaw agreed in Copenhagen and in Paris, really, about this whole dependence on future carbon credits bought mm-hmm. overseas. It's starting to get attention in New Zealand domestically in a way that it wasn't when Bernard and I were first talking about it some months ago. I got in trouble with Christine Hood, your colleague, for pointing up the, the uh, David Frame comments about the same thing. I find it hard to believe that New, Zealand, New Zealanders are going to accept $24 billion going overseas to overseas carbon credits into a market that doesn't yet exist to plant trees in Tierra del Fuego when they don't have infrastructure in, in the east coast of New Zealand. And I, and I worry that there is a... I, I noticed, and I, again, one of these things, it's not just about New Zealand, of course, it's about much bigger countries, but the Netherlands is having a real problem politically getting through its carbon promises with um, Dutch farmers. You know, and there's an, there's an anti, anti-climate change, if you like, or anti-climate change measures party that is now starting to become very, very powerful in the Netherlands and pushing back against almost exactly the same kind of problems that they've got high nitrous oxide levels they've got you know a lot of methane methane very high livestock mm-hmm. a lot of pigs you know we've got similar similar yeah. problems yeah i think uh there's a multitude of issues going on here so obviously we've got the the science question and sort of the the climate change question that's that's one piece of the puzzle and it's got particular connotations and it's got a timeline associated with it and then we've sort of got our national politics complicated as they may be, that also have their own set of, you know, values and and timelines associated with them as well. Those don't always line up with each other is is problem number one. Mm. Um, And then the second piece is global cooperation. So in order for us to have this global carbon market where we can buy offsets and, you know, everything is sensible um, and people are sort of behaving as they intended or as you intend them to when you purchase those offsets, there needs to be a really high level of global cooperation that doesn't exist at the moment. So as you pointed out, this market is fledgling at, at, at best. And so, oh. yeah, I think it's fair for people to feel uncomfortable with the idea that we'd be spending you know, billions of dollars into something that we don't really know yet what it looks like. Rebecca, aren't politicians going to have to refocus on the domestic challenges in this and and also in a sense you know defending the way we farm to some extent um but but really looking at that question domestically i, I just I, I worry that there's going to be without somebody without somebody with the charisma of, of jacinda ardern although she may have burned all the oil in her tank as it were you know with with everything else she, she dealt with it's going to be quite hard it seems to have a politician with charisma and force mm. i mean you've got a government at the moment that we before you came on we were talking about the great ditching of virtually everything that might be even vaguely irritating to a middle-class white yeah. voter in New Zealand. Um, yeah, it's a real challenge. Like I highlighted this this political timeline and the political values mm. that may not line up with our goals in terms of climate. That's a massive issue. And it's something that politicians worldwide, but also in New Zealand, are going to have to face up to if they're serious about mm. making you know, important and sustainable and lasting decisions that are going to minimize our impact on the climate, that means trading off with some other things. 
It is a bit of a classic, isn't it? The very short, you know, it, it's, you know, everybody says that those, you know, politicians are really good at dealing with what's in front of them, or they think only mm. of what's in front of them, and that climate change is a really difficult one um, because, it's, because it's theoretically in the long term, but we now know it's also in the short term. You know, it's, it has a lot of similarities to me with um, the questions over generative AI, but um, we can talk about that separately, I think. Just finally, Rebecca, I wanted to get a sense of just how realistic it is for the Treasury to be forecasting in budgets for the next four years that New Zealand could spend up to $3 billion a year on uh, climate emissions credits overseas, when, as I understand it, there aren't that many or any developed markets apart from Mm -hmm. the EU selling credits, and it would require some really heavy lifting diplomatically by our climate diplomats to do these deals, particularly when there are others, Switzerland, for example, which, you know, has been out there um, rattling the tin, looking for spare trees to plant for quite some time. Could you tell us, you know, how much actual action is there for New Zealand to get in on overseas if we wanted to spend $3 billion? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll be honest, I'm not an economist. um, So I'll just preface that uh, statement here. So, uh, Global carbon markets are complicated at the best of times, um, a complicated subject to broach. But yeah, I think $3 billion is a a lot of money to think about when there's a a nascent market and Mm -hmm. it would be a big challenge. But carbon offsetting has always been an attractive option for issues that are difficult to deal with in the short term. Um, And so I think perhaps reflecting on, you know, what are those issues that are really causing us, you know, those difficulties and how how can we start to think about addressing them as opposed to going down the route of offsetting when that may or may not be a sustainable or stable or even a sensible solution. But all of that analysis relies on us, you know, behaving sensibly and thinking sensibly about how we're, we're tackling this climate change issue, which um, is a pretty massive caveat. That rather is. Don't, don't, don't worry about not being econ- an economist. That's never stopped us talking about something we don't know about. <laughs> Rebecca, uh, thank you very much for being on The Hoon. It's lovely to have you. And uh, Rebecca there from the University of Canterbury. Thank Thanks you. so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Yo, Dalipa, where are you? I'm here. Hopefully um, you can hear me loud and clear. We can. <laughs> excellent, yeah. excellent. So you want to, you're wanting to talk about Gabe Newell, I hear. Yeah, is he a mate of yours? He sounds like somebody who would be a mate of well, yours. Well, he would. I'd like him to be a mate because I, I did write a story at one point about about his. Uh, I think it's, I think he's got the twenty fourth biggest super yacht in the world, which was Rothanante, which was um, oh, right. parked in Auckland silo for most of the um, COVID period. But what I also really liked about Rothanante was that it had a support vessel, a tender that was almost as big as the mothership, what's called an Explorer super yacht, uh, and it um, is basically an icebreaker, uh, and it has all the toys and the helicopters and the, and the uh, slides and so on. But yeah, so but he's, this is all about gaming, right? Yes. Yes. Let's back, back, back a bit and also introduce Dalipa Fonseca from yes. Business Desk. Everybody knows Dalipa. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And the reason I was keen to get Dalipa on is because he wrote a fantastic story uh, on Business Desk today, which I've put a link into the invite for this uh, hoon, talking about the gaming industry and leading with the interesting calls from our gaming industry leaders for our government to pull finger and try to compete with the Australian government, which is providing subsidies for Australian gaming companies 
in part to poach New Zealand gaming developers across the Tasman. Could you tell us about, uh, you know, what the current situation in the gaming industry is, but also about that key moment during lockdowns when it looked like we had the rock star gaming industry in the world? Yeah, well, um, you know, I guess uh, perhaps I can paint a picture for you because, um, you know, this kind of story sort of started. Um, I went to visit, you know, Rocketworks, who are kind of the main, I guess, big high-profile gaming uh, creators in Auckland CBD, and they are located right at the top of Commercial Bay. So their office is like something out of, um, you know, Star Trek or Star, probably more accurately, Star Wars, uh, in terms of the sort of neon <laughs> lights and, uh, you know, all kinds of things at the entrance. And um, and so I was just, you know, having a conversation with him about, uh, with, um, Stephen might be there, who's a, you know, chief operating officer there. And I was kind of asking him, well, you know, how's the, co- how's the industry after COVID? And we kind of walked through the you know, whole COVID situation and plus what it's like now. And the interesting thing about the whole, that I thought of the whole gaming industry is that, you know, during COVID, it was seen as a, or even, you know, before that, it was seen as a real growth, potential growth industry for New Zealand. And we had a lot of opportunities that kind of came through uh, during COVID. One of them was um, Peter's mate, Gabe, uh, being basically stranded in um, New Zealand during sort of the early stages of the kind of pandemic. Just paint a picture of, of who Gabe is for those people who aren't gamers. I've heard something about Steam, but tell us who Gabe is. Yeah, so the Steam Marketplace is basically the biggest marketplace. If you're a PC gamer, you will have a Steam account, and that's where all kinds of developers are basically, uh, you know, you have to be on there if you're trying to sell your games, basically, to sort of the PC market. And so that's, you know, home for all kinds of indie kind of developers and everything. And um, the thing with Gabe that he mentioned, and he actually said this, I think, publicly in New Zealand at the time, was, you know, he, he was getting calls from his employees, because they were locked down overseas. Um, he's getting calls from his employees who really wanted to move to New Zealand. And he um, he said that he had applied for a residency. I'm not quite sure um, what exactly happened uh, with that. I assume he met the income requirements. Um, <laughs> in the end, it seems like it basically uh, hit the rocks on just not being able to bring people through the border and not being able to get the exceptions, even though... Uh, as we know, plenty of others were mm. granted exceptions in plenty of other industries from agriculture through to, you know, horticulture through to um, uh, through even a mountain biking tournament. I saw we're on the exceptions list. But, you know, that was one of the kind of missed opportunities. Um, and there have been sort of others in the gaming industry has been feeling sort of that they have difficulty mm. being heard as a, as a sort of industry compared to others. Philippe, do you think do you think the government just is it embarrassed about the Peter Thiel thing? Is that is that what stops them? Because I, I, I was aware that that Gabe Newell was here. He also brought mm. his mother out. You know, he was stuck here and then decided to actually kind of base himself here. And he seemed like quite the asset. I don't know whether he ever said that his values were totally aligned to New Zealand the way Peter Thiel did. But do you think it's embarrassment about the Thiel case that makes the government a little slow off the mark with these kind of billionaires? I actually wonder in Gabe's case, I, I think that that could be a case in terms of there's a bit of hesitancy around these billionaires. But then again, they've got a you know super high net worth um, investor scheme running with Immigration New Zealand at the moment. We're trying to get um, investors in, and presumably um, Gabe would have uh, qualified in that. Uh, but, mm. you know, if you cast your minds back to the beginning of the pandemic, there was sort of this, I think there was a kind of probably a level of naivety uh, amongst us where we kind of assumed that we would be able to maintain that position sort of forever and, and never really have to mm. 
consider letting you know what the path out of it might be and would we have to let you know who would we have to let through the border and we never really fully you know grappled with those questions so it kind of became a little bit about who shouted the loudest who was inside um the country and i think that that just probably next a lot of those sort of plans you know because we couldn't really come up with any alternatives but that that was you know obviously a nice to have and the gaming industry did well because um during the time of covid they could actually collaborate uh, in mm. person at the beginning um in a, at a time when other gaming studios were basically stuck in their bedrooms well there's nothing wrong with being stuck in your bedroom to <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very true very true um and then now but now they're worried because australia has come to the party with some big tax rebates mm. and actually these are pretty common uh, right around the world um, but the issue is that uh, they haven't <laughs> they don't happen right across the um, Tasman where um, we have a closer economic relations uh, agreement which makes it so yeah. much easier for New Zealanders to move over well they're taking our nurses and our billionaires yeah well <laughs> our future billionaire ideas and um, the, the gaming industry makes a point that well you're giving subsidies to the film industry to have here and you don't own the the films come here, Lord of the Rings comes here. Well, Lord of the Rings is a slightly different situation, but, you know, Marvel movies come here, Quantum, Nania or whatever. Um, I don't know if they were one of them, but, you know, they come over here and um, they film over here. And then sort of but the IP is owned in the United States, whereas the gaming, these are studios who are developing ideas over here. Mm. So most of the profits will accrue over here. And um, But what they're saying is, well, with these tax breaks from Australia and, you know, some of them run to 50, so, well, there's a kind of 20% sort of offset, which actually the thing hasn't been passed yet because it's a little bit complicated to run these, calculate exactly. It's not like a movie with a video game. You know, these things are always being updated. So these re, these offsets get paid at the end, completion of a project. Can, can I ask you, you Dilipa and, and Bernard, as as political experts as well, um, which, which I'm most certainly not, but as, as usual, it doesn't stop me asking you the question or talking about it, but... When Jacinda left, did she take the testicles of this government with her as well? Mm-hmm. The metaphorical testicles? They seem to be stripping away any, any vestige of taking the initiative on anything. Sorry, I sound a bit Hosking-ish there. To be fair, the actual offset was announced by Scott Morrison. So, you know, just Ardern was in power at the, mm-hmm. at the time. And even though they hadn't implemented it then, um, they had actually... Signal. They basically what they've done is they've sent a signal. Is they they're basically saying, well, once this thing actually passes, you're going to get your tax offset from July of, <laughs> I think it was um, July of uh, twenty uh, twenty two, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, you know, they've been assured that once this goes through, they're going to get their offset. And on top of that, the states have a um, rebate as well. Yeah. And so you know, now it's Hipkins' problem, but Ardern would have known that this was coming as well. And we haven't heard much about what exactly, um, you know, the government is planning to do. So all these video game studios are kind of washing the budget. Yeah. But what's happened here, though, is we have a, a group of people in Treasury and MB and the New Zealand Initiative who are locked into this sort of late 80s, mid 90s idea of this pure market economy where the government never subsidizes anything, never picks a winner. And uh, somehow that uh, this is still the actual case. When mm. thank you, Roger Douglas. Yeah, we've just, yeah, we've just seen the United States government pass a bill through Congress to spend a third of a trillion dollars subsidising a transition mm. to renewable energy. 
Australia's conservative government, you know, this is the pro-business government, supposedly all for, you know, pure free markets, was the one who provided this. Mm. And you'd think it would be a Labour government, um, as we saw uh, during the early 2000s when it was Helen Clark's government that basically said, enough of this um, Treasury burping, we're going to subsidise our movie industry too and make sure we have a proper industry. And to be honest, our gaming industry is in part driven out of all of the um, the digital work that was done on the movie industry. So there's quite a close connection here. And you could argue, well, if you are going to subsidise the movie industry, you might as well do the gaming industry as well. They are at least high-paid jobs for people who stay here and don't necessarily pollute the water table or anything else. And remember, when the government says that it doesn't suck well, when people at the New Zealand Initiative and Treasury say that, they don't, that the government doesn't subsidise other industries, it's simply not true. Um, obviously, the agriculture industry and many others aren't uh, included in the emissions trading scheme where they should definitely be included. And of course, capital gains are not taxed. So if you're in the land business, residential or agricultural... We're all in the land business one way or another, Bernard. Ah, uh, yeah. Then then that's subsidised effectively as well. So I think actually what the case here is not so much the government is you know afraid of uh, doing um, big things. I just think it's locked in by a bunch of thinkers and ministries that have captured the government and they don't know how to get out. Did you see, Bernard, the, the interview with 103-year-old um, Roger Douglas um, railing against the lack of courage in the government and Selma yeah. and the Herald? It was, yeah. yeah. Apparently he'll do, he'll do that to everybody in Queen Street on a Friday evening but yeah. with a loud hail. Yeah, I mean, this part of me as a, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old growing up in New Zealand that was cheering Roger Douglas on, you know, get rid of that that tyrant Robert Muldoon and mm. free us all from the shackles of Muldoon's uh, interference. And that, that was needed, a lot of that. But now we have to be pragmatic and we have to actually fight to keep our people in New Zealand, particularly if they've got high-paid jobs and we've got an industry that actually has got a start and is doing well. And we're just saying to the Australians, you hear, you have them. It's fine. We're pure. We're wonderfully pure. <laughs> We're also bloody poor. Mm. And I uh, wish we'd do something more about that. Anyway, um, uh, Dalipa, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming in. I better let you back to do some work. Uh, but also thank you for writing this article uh, that's on Business Desk, looking at not just an interesting situation with one of our most innovative industries with a thousand high-paid jobs, but also an opportunity that we seem to have missed during the lockdown when we could have you know, locked in the world's biggest gaming executive. And well, we just... We did, we did lock him in on his own super yacht, two super yeah. yachts. Let's go back yeah, to yeah. the super no, yachts. he had his own house. He wasn't even competing for housing. And his mum. <laughs> and his mum. They could all be in New Zealand now building, you know, the Steam version of, of the New Zealand gaming industry and said we just let it let it slip. Oh, they probably probably would have moved. To, is it Timaru that's the, that's the capital of steampunk? They probably would have started yes, branding on that's, Steampunk. That's right. And there's yeah. a there's a perfectly good dock there for his super mm, yacht. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Dalipa. Lovely to see you. Oh, no, nice to see you. Thanks Thanks for the time. Good to see you, Dalipa. Bye. Good to see you, Peter. It's been a, a real lap around the traps this week, geopolitics, climate change, and our economics and gaming industry. Peter, what's really caught your eye this week? And I have to say, it's the thing that you and I both read avidly, and it's an extraordinary story. Yeah, no, the Rupert Murdoch story is absolutely gorgeous because, of course, 
one, you know, it, it's 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 really a summation of everything we've known in a sense, except that it does seem to have some fabulous sources that I would say mm, are yeah. emanating even in a named way from uh, the much shunned um, Jerry Hall. And of course, it coincides. Now, look, I want to point out that I haven't watched the fourth series of Succession yet because I don't have a Neon subscription or a Sky subscription in the UK where I am. And so I'm very disappointed that I now have been reading obituaries of Logan Roy. So I know a bit of what happened. But <gasps> Spoiler be- alert! <laughs> one, one of the best aspects of the uh, Vanity Fair story on Rupert Murdoch was that Jerry's Hall's um, split agreement with Rupert uh, included apparently a pact not to discuss with the with the, the writing room of succession um, you know any of the stories is, that she took out of Rupert I mean it is completely ridiculous so this is of course a, a feature about a Rupert Murdoch that was written by Gabe Sherman is that yeah. right in the New York magazine no in the in Vanity Fair and it's very very detailed it's what what it's actually also particularly good on is the is the succession of Lachlan and the idea that when Rupert dies he's like he's 93 now and of course he broke his one of the most the saddest things in it is it's now become clear that Rupert really seriously hurt himself broke his back on Lachlan's rather beautiful carbon fiber super yacht and nearly died and that Jerry nursed him nursed him back to health now what's also weird about that is that you, you will remember, and we've shown, and, and there needs to be a kind of um, not safe for work uh, image of this, of of Rupert's rather reptilian um, or amphibian body being hauled out of the water by Jerry Hall. And now there's an almost identical picture of his rather weird new fiancé, or, or now ex-fiancé after two weeks, doing the same with this kind of, you know, 93-year-old man in shorts, which is not a, a brilliant look. But, you know, Jerry Hall... You know, appeared nursed him out, nursed him to health. He had a very bad case of COVID, and then she was um, summarily fired by text or divorced by text, rather. Yeah, and this is someone who nursed him through COVID, feeding him spoons of soup, no doubt. Yeah, it is quite a thing. And for those who are following Succession and wondering, well, that sounds a lot like the Murdochs, and it does sound like the writers of Succession have got some pretty good sources in the Murdoch family. It is just the most extraordinary story. Well, the other one that's actually brilliant in there is is and somebody was talking to me about this the um, that uh, Jerry Hall got a rather beautiful Oxfordshire home out of her mm. uh, out of out of the divorce, but then noticed that the security cameras were still um, beaming back to Fox in New York, and uh, Mick Jagger's security people supposedly came and um, sorted that out for her. You know, so you know she's still in good terms with Mick Jagger. It would appear. Yeah, that is the that is the thing. You've got the worlds of Mick Jagger, uh, Rupert Murdoch, crossing over. You, you couldn't make it up because you don't have to. Yeah. No, it's just the most extraordinary thing. I mean, both you and I, you're in closer proximity than me. I covered News Corporation in the early '90s as a company and did a bunch of press conferences with Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch when when he was uh, at that point favoured to be the one to take over. He then fell out and James was the uh, one who was going to take over. And that's the other thing about this article, that it it is littered with brutal, brutal things being said by James about the rest of the crew, Mm. including that he refused to go to, to Rupert Murdoch's 90th birthday party. Yeah. And that... If you think succession is over the top, it's not at all. This is <laughs> this is exactly how it is. No, and let's also remember that that Rupert's mother Elizabeth, I think, l- lasted until one hundred and three. So we've got a good a good while from him yet. Although it'll be very interesting to see if he ends up being called into the Delaware court, where Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox for one point six billion dollars. Uh, 
you know, that's, that's actually not entirely material, and I suspect they will settle out of court, but it's fabulously embarrassing for the whole of Fox and not just Rupert. Yeah, that is the thing. In the coming week, we'll hear more about it. And um, it's one of those stories that when he dies, the world changes in quite a way. And it struck me also, I've been listening to the Empire podcast over the last uh, couple of weeks, which I'd heartily recommend. Yes, it's one of my favourites. William Dorimple and uh, Anita Anand, yeah. Oh, you think you're, you're relating his, his to, the, to the Ottoman Empire? Exactly. Oh, so is, is Rupert Suleiman the Magnificent? Could be. But yeah. more importantly, his father, uh, Keith Murdoch, who founded the Adelaide um, Advertiser, which was the start of Adelaide Rupert News. Murdoch's. Adelaide News, Bernard. But didn't he take over the Advertiser? Is that right? Oh, well, I think he took over the Advertiser as part of Herald and Week- when he was the chief executive of Herald and Weekly Times. But the right. Adelaide News was the one that he emerged emerged oh. with, which is why News Corporation used to be called the News Corp, and also why the News Corp logo is taken from Keith Murdoch's signature. His own writing style is why I didn't know is, that. is the script that's used for News Corp these days. Wow! And the reason I'm interested in this is that quite a bit of the Empire podcast is about Gallipoli and about its yeah. key role in the First World War. Well, Keith, Keith wrote the Gallipoli myth. Exactly. Created the Gallipoli myth, exactly. And got heavily involved in the background in the British Parliament after Gallipoli to basically get rid of mm-hmm. Churchill. And uh, I, I just find that stuff um, fascinating. But Bernard, the, the Murdochs have never asked anything of any politician in any country. They just, they just give no, them things. No, And so, Bernard, do we do a skateboarding dog now? Oh, yes, go for it. I just thought there was a little, little story that I picked up from my spin-off thing, which was that global warming, glo- global heating has uh, apparently, according to Dartmouth College, increased over the last 10 years the number of home runs scored in, in uh, top league baseball in the United States because higher temperatures cr- reduces the friction of objects flying through the air. And they're forecasting that between the end of the next century, there was going to be a um, potentially 95 more home runs per season uh, than there are now because of because of climate change. So you know, as usual, there's an upside. There's an upside. Yes, indeed. And I, and I hope that story isn't too much inside baseball, Bernard. Aha, but don't. That's excellent, uh, Peter. Lovely to see you. Thank you very much for for dialing in at some ungodly hour of the morning from Spain. I'll see you from Italy next week. Ah, oh, of course, of course. Possibly, I, I might try and <laughs> arrange a more uh, spectacular background. Looking forward to it. Stay safe and uh, enjoy, and we will talk again in a week's time on The Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey. We also have Peter Bale from from the Spanish Bureau of the Kaka, and uh, this has been a Hoon. Kakiteano. Bye, Bernard.